0: For Knox County Public Library this is a Brown Bag Green Book podcast. Dr. John Nolt introduces the themes of his book A Land Imperiled, The Declining Health of the Southern Appalachian Bioregion. Dr. Nolt is professor of philosophy at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville and the author of seven books. He spoke on June 20, 2012. What I'm going to talk about today is this book, A Land Imperiled, The Declining Health of the Southern Appalachian Bioregion. And I'll tell you a little bit about the history of the book and say a few things about the contents and then open it up for questions, discussion, comments. I came here in 1978. My daughter was born in 1985. And a funny thing happened right after her birth. I found myself becoming increasingly depressed. And I could not understand why. And this went on for some months. And and I thought, well, geez, do do men have postpartum depression? Is this some kind of male version of this? What's going on here? And uh, after a while, it slowly dawned on me that what was going on was I wasn't really depressed. I was angry. And the reason for the anger was I was thinking about the kind of world that my daughter would grow up into and recognizing that it was not going to be like the world that I grew up in. It was not going to be as beautiful. It was not going to be as free. It was not going to be as unspoiled as the world that I grew up in. And that was what was making me angry. And uh, I started thinking, well, you know, what if she grows up and she comes back and says, well, why did you do this? How could you have screwed things up so badly? And I thought, gee, I I want to have an answer to that question. Uh, I decided I've got to get active. I've got to do something. I've got to take some responsibility for what's going on in this world. Some year or two after she was born, I got involved in environmental activism. Now, I was trained as a logician, mathematical logic. And that's what I came to Tennessee to teach. And so it didn't really have anything to do with my work. So outside of class, I did a bunch of... Environmentally active work, Uh, worked on wetland preservation and and water quality, and uh, some of you may have heard of the David Witherspoon toxic waste sites in South Knoxville. I worked on that for quite a bit. Worked with Ralph Hutchison in the back there with the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance. We got uh, a lot of attention, a lot of publicity for the David Witherspoon site. That was a, a situation where a scrap metal dealer had taken toxic materials, including Uh, Partially enriched uranium, thorium, some large quantity of PCBs, and and so on. Much of it came from the Oak Ridge facilities in the form of contaminated scrap. The PCBs came from TVA and other folks who used large electrical transformers. PCB oil was in there, and it went into the soil, the groundwater. Uh, And it was a toxic mess, and uh, it took about 20 years to get the government to recognize that that needed to be a Superfund site. Well, that, that happened rather quickly, but then to, to actually get the funding to clean it up took about 20 years. So there were some things that I was doing to try to, you know, when my daughter would ask that question, I'd say, well, I tried to do a few things. You know, there, uh, As bad as things are, we got, there were some things that, that we did. This activism became so consuming for me that I thought either I'm going to have to quit my job because it's taking so much of my time, and so much of this is where my passion is, or I'm going to have to find out some way to integrate it into the work that I do. And fortunately, when you're in philosophy, you can do philosophy of X, where X is anything. So I decided what I'd do is (laughs) philosophy of the environment. And I started teaching a class on that and with a lot of support from my department, which was very helpful. And so I began teaching an undergraduate course on that in the 90s and then ramped it up into graduate courses over the last decade or so. And that's been now the trajectory of my career. I still do a little bit of logic. And in fact, uh, lately I found out a way to unify the two. So I'm writing a book on mathematical logic as applied to the aggregation of incomparable values such as you get when you try to compare environmental values with human values and... uh, That's the work I'm doing today. Uh, But what I want to talk with you about is this book, The Land Imperiled, as I mentioned. This was published in 2005. It was written mostly around 2003. It's actually the second book of this sort that I worked on. We published with a, a little nonprofit publisher called Earth Knows Publications, which is affiliated with Narrow Ridge Earth Literacy Center up in Washburn, Tennessee. Some of you may know that. Uh, we published a book called "What Have We Done?" which was a, an account of the degradation of the environment in the southern Appalachian region. Back in 1997, by just five or six years later, a lot of that was out of date. A lot of the information that we had had gathered things had changed. Things changed so rapidly. So we started talking about, well let's do another one." And I approached U.T. Press, and they were interested, and uh, so U.T. Press published the Landing Peril which was nice. I'm not the sole author. I asked a number of folks who were experts in various facets of environmental science and so on to contribute to that book, and the chapters have different authors, and some of my grad students contributed as well. It's designed as what we called an assessment of bioregional health. And what that means is that we were trying to look at not just the health of the people who live in southern Appalachia, but also the health of the entire system. Uh, some people talk in terms of something called ecosystem health, and I'll talk a little bit about that lately, but the health not only of the human inhabitants of southern Appalachia, but also of the non-human inhabitants, and the whole system of life in the southern Appalachian bioregion. By the southern Appalachian bioregion, I mean the watershed of the upper Tennessee Valley. So that includes uh, a bit of western North Carolina, a bit of Southwestern Virginia, and uh, most of East Tennessee, and, and a little bit down into to North Georgia. So that's the region that, that we're talking about here. And then when we talk about health, we're talking about something that we call functional integrity, where things work like they are, we could say, designed to work. A tree will live out its entire life cycle. That's functional integrity for a tree. Okay? A human being... We have lots of functions. We have respiration. We have metabolism. We have thinking and walking and all the kinds of things that are typical of human beings. A person who has functional integrity does all those things pretty well. That's health. The metaphor of health struck us as particularly apt when applied to this bioregion. And here are a couple of examples of how the metaphor works in the book. One of the things that has happened in this region is that as we fragment forests as we fragment the landscape by building roads or by cutting power line cuts through it or developing large areas. Uh, Those cuts, those slices through the landscape, serve as corridors for invasive species of various kinds to get into the wilder areas and create problems. So for example, you get invasive plants coming in along road corridors, they follow the road corridors, or you get Critters like uh, house cats, which are domesticated animals that follow the roads, road corridors in, and then they, they go into the forest through those edges. They're predators on, on bird nests and so on. Lots of in- invasion like that. The analogy, the metaphor that, that works pretty well there is the metaphor of infection. Okay, if you've got a cut, well, that's a pathway for invasive organisms, in our case mostly bacteria to get into your body and cause trouble. If you've got a road cut through a woods, that's a path for invasive organisms to get in and cause trouble in the woods. And you'll find that many of the functions of the natural ecosystem in the woods are decreased or made less than they could be by these kinds of invasions. So we have lots of invasive plants and animals, many of them from various places all over the world, inhabiting East Tennessee. There's a particular corridor along the river, uh, Severe Avenue runs along the river, on the south side of the river in Knoxville, Virtually all the vegetation there is Asian. All the trees, there's, there's Palavnia, there's Mimosa, there's uh, Ailanthus, a the tree of heaven. It's all from, from China and, and, and parts of Asia. So what we see is the, the native vegetation of Tennessee being lost in many cases. The rare, the endemic species are being lost and overtaken by these invasive species. So there's something that I would think of on a very large scale by the metaphor of infection. You've got an infection here. When you've got flora and fauna on the landscape that are no longer adapted to the climate that the landscape has because of global climate change, then you've got dysfunction. One of the real threats is to the ecosystems and the upper elevations of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, where you've got a lot of rare and endemic species. Salamanders are particularly diverse up there, and they've got nowhere to go. As those peaks heat up, their habitat just Goes, we lose them. I was out at uh, a workshop in Aspen, Colorado with a bunch of climate scientists and ecologists, and one of the major themes that arose in the workshop was the notion of assisted migration. Okay, because as the planet warms up, basically the ranges of species, the normal species ranges, move toward the poles. But if you've got someplace like the Smoky Mountains where you move toward the poles and you go down in elevation, you move north and you go down in elevation, then you, you've got a problem. So you've got to, if those organisms, if those salamanders are going to survive, if organisms in those particular niches are going to survive, somebody's got to actually physically pick them up and take them someplace else and hope that the new habitat will be suitable for them and that they won't serve as invasive species in the new habitat. But basically what a lot of these ecologists were saying is we got no choice. It's assisted migration from now on there will not be the same ecosystems because everything, everything's range is moving toward the poles. Well, that's certainly going to be some of concern for us here in East Tennessee because we have this incredibly unique ecosystem in the Smokies and already highly degraded, that spruce fir ecosystem at the top. It's really, really hard hit in a lot of ways that we talk about in the book. I don't have time to go into here. Another place where we use the metaphor of health in the book is The Tennessee River and the French Broad and the the Holston, which come together to make it, used to be pristine, healthy rivers. They had the highest diversity of freshwater mussels in the world. We've lost a lot of that, largely due to the construction of the dams by TVA, because you've got these very huge impoundments that bury water very deep behind the dam, and and that water becomes oxygen-deprived. It it can no longer aerate itself. They're dead zones in the deep waters behind the dam. And as you release it through the tailwaters, then you get oxygen-depleted waters going down the river. Well, uh, TVA has sought to address this problem by injecting oxygen into the turbines of the dams. They put what are essentially long garden hoses with holes in them, and they pump oxygen into the water. What that is is a river on artificial respiration. That's not healthy. The river used to aerate itself because it would flow over rocks. It had rocky shoals. Right out here in front of Knoxville, before Loudon Dam went in, you could wade across the Tennessee River in the summer because there was a rocky shoal there and it was not deep like it is now. So that would provide oxygen for the river, but now we have a river that's on life support as a result of human interference. So those are, those are the kinds of examples that we talk about in the book of, of how what was a natural, healthy, functional ecosystem has become degraded where it now needs artificial assistance. We're going to have to do assisted migration. And we're doing artificial respiration for the river and so on and so on. So how do we assess health of a natural system? Well, we know how to assess human health. I won't talk about that. Everybody understands that. Rates of disease or mortality in individuals in the system. Scott Schlarbaum is a professor over at, on the ag campus in, at UT, studies diseases of trees. And to hear him lecture is really scary because we've got a lot of invasive organisms coming in and affecting the various tree species, the native tree species of Tennessee. There's a great deal of disease in the tree populations of Tennessee. So that's a sign of ill health when you've got all that you know invasive fungi, invasive insects. Another way to gauge health is rates of nutrient cycling or energy cycling in a healthy system. There's a lot of flow through of both energy and nutrients. As that decreases, that suggests that health is declining. Productivity of biomass, the more stuff that you've got growing, plant and animal matter, that's an indicator of health. Biodiversity, genetic diversity, the more robust populations that you have out there, they've got a lot of different genetic variation in the individuals so that If something happens, a disease comes into that population or there's some climate change or something, the genetic variation is what enables the species to adapt. It'll tend to survive if it's got a wide genetic variation. But a species that has been narrowed down to a small number of individuals or a small genetic pool will then be much less healthy and much less resilient, much less capable of dealing with departures from the current state doesn't have what ecologists call buffering capacity. It uh, doesn't have stability or resilience. The thing to um, remember, the most important thing I think to remember about health is that it's not what we're used to. We tend to go out, you know, you look in the woods and you think, well, that's just the woods. That's the woods. Uh-uh, that's the woods in an unhealthy state. We've not seen the woods in a healthy state. Okay. It's been a long time since you've seen the woods in a healthy state. Health is not an average. It's not what we're used to. It's the ideal of functional integrity. And because we're familiar with a disintegrating environment, we're not seeing health. Most of us have never encountered a healthy ecosystem in East Tennessee because so much of it is so badly affected. This does not mean that we want to return to whatever was here before European settlement or something like that. That would be impossible. Health is a dynamic thing. It always changes. There's been a constant change in the landscape. If you look at the geologic history of East Tennessee, you know, 10,000 years ago, there was, it was an ice age. and Although the glaciers didn't come down this far, we had mammoths and, and all kinds of strange critters roaming our landscape. And that was a healthy landscape, but very different conditions. And, and if we could return to health in the future, it would be very different from anything that ever happened in the past. So it's not, health is not going back to what was, but health is attaining functional integrity for what exists in the present and we're a far piece from that right now. I looked at the air quality index today. It's, uh, it's listed as unhealthy. Active children and adults and people with lung disease such as asthma should reduce prolonged or heavy exertion outdoors. Okay, so anybody who likes to do physical activity, you're much better off doing it early in the morning or late at night because the ozone builds up and builds up during the day. By about four in the afternoon, it reaches a peak begins to go down. Where's the ozone come from? There's high level or stratospheric ozone and low level or tropospheric ozone. The high level ozone is good. That's what protects us from the sun's ultraviolet rays. If we don't have that, we get rapid sunburn, skin cancer, cataracts, and all kinds of stuff. So you want the ozone up high. The ozone at ground level is called tropospheric ozone or low level ozone. That's bad because you don't want to breathe that stuff. Ozone is an O3 molecule. Normal molecule of oxygen is O2. An O3 wants to give up one of its oxygen atoms. And when it does that, when it reacts with something like the tissue in your lungs, in effect, it's like a searing reaction. It causes inflammation of the tissue. That makes your lungs more susceptible to infection and to such respiratory ailments as asthma, bronchitis, and so on. We have here almost double the national average of chronic respiratory disease in Knoxville because of our high ozone levels. We have high ozone levels in part because we live in a valley and because the air in the valley is relatively stagnant as compared with air, say, on the Great Plains or something like that. The pollutants that we have here accumulate in our valley. Some people have said, I've heard this said, I, I couldn't believe it when I heard it. Well, then we should raise the health standard Allow higher, more pollution because we can't get rid of the pollution, <laughs> okay? The point is you've got to live within the limits provided by the system that, you're, that you exist in, okay? That's what that idea misses. And the limits provided by the topography that we live in here are pretty stringent. We live in a valley. We're not going to get rid of the pollutants that create ozone. The pollutants that create ozone, basically there's one thing that we can control. And that is nitrogen oxides and nitrogen oxides are products of combustion. And the two major sources of combustion in the Tennessee Valley are coal-fired power plants and traffic. Okay. In the atmosphere, those nitrogen oxides combine with volatile organic compounds in the presence of sunlight on a day like today. They create a reaction which produces ozone. Ozone is what's called a secondary pollutant. Nothing is actually releasing ozone in any quantities. It's caused by a reaction between volatile organic compounds and nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere. That reaction needs some sunlight to power it. So it's when the sun is shining that you get the high ozone. And it is basically, for everyone who lives here, that's all of us, it's creating scar tissue in your lungs. Your lungs are not as effective. They lack the functional integrity of the lungs of somebody who would live in a less high ozone area. The air we breathe is, to some extent, decreasing our health. So one of the reasons, obviously, why we'd like to have good ecological health is because good ecological health goes along with things like clean air, clean water, healthy food, and so on. And we need those for ourselves. But that's a selfish reason. There are other reasons that that I think are really even more fundamental. And this is what I like to teach in my classes at UT. It's not just us that matter. I mean, each of us cares about ourselves and we care about our own health and so on. That's important and and, and it's right that we should, but we should also care about more than that. One of the lessons of history is something that, that I like to call the expansion of the moral community. This comes from the great ecologist, Aldo Leopold. This is an idea that I get from him. He points out the fact that in the earliest moralities, you can go back to even tribal moralities. The concern was just for the immediate environment, and just for the members of the tribe. If you were a member of another tribe, but you didn't really count. It's, uh, at least in certain warlike tribes, it was common to you know go over across the hill and and rape and plunder and steal and and so on. Uh, that was. Considered acceptable behavior because the people in the other tribe weren't members of the tribe. They didn't count. And as we got more civilized, of course, you couldn't do that in little tribes. So with city states and then nations and empires, you know, the, the people in your city state or the people in your nations, your empire, they counted. But nobody else did. So you could if you defeated them in war, you could enslave them and so on. That was all of human history was like that. It's only within the 20th century that there has been widespread acceptance, even even political acceptance, of the idea of universal human rights. Only since World War II, actually, that that's become a theme in political discourse. So we've expanded the moral community, and I think everybody in this room would agree that if you're a human being, you count just like everybody else as a human being. That's universal human rights. We all have the same moral considerability. But there's one problem with that. And that is it leaves out the majority of human beings. Because the majority of human beings will live in the future. They don't live today. And we've not really thought in our political considerations about future generations, people who will live after us. And because we now have the ability to change the climate, to pollute the oceans, to create waste that will remain toxic and or radioactive for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, We need to expand the range of our moral vision way into the future. The kinds of biodiversity losses, the losses of species that we're seeing today, are not going to be made up for several million years. So we're affecting the future for that distance. That's longer than humanity has existed. Longer than the human species has existed. Our moral responsibility has now extended that far into the future because we can do that, we can predict it, we can control it. Our choices are affecting those things right now. So, so we've got to expand our, our moral vision that far in the future, but we've got also got to realize that it's not just limited to the human species. Every living thing on this planet is a relative of ours. Okay. It's one large moral community. The whole planet is a moral community, and all living things are part of it. And we have a, a great task before us. We're thankful for the, the work of other generations who have eliminated the, the prejudices that we've had, the racism, the sexism, the nationalism, the religious bigotries, the, all those things that caused the terrible events of history. But we've got a lot more work to do because we've only expanded the moral community to the human community at present. There's a lot more life out there that we need to be thinking about if we're going to prevent greater tragedies in the future. So that's another theme of the book. I I wanted to go back and think about what we got wrong in writing this book in 2003. Much of it is pretty accurate. The one thing I really regret is that we completely missed the danger of the ash spill at at the Kingston power plant. (laughs) Here's what we said about ash ponds at power plants in the book. Uh, much of the waste must be landfilled or stored on the plant site in ash ponds. The landfilled or stored waste may contaminate groundwater. That's all we said. If we had only thought a little bit more about you know, the breakage and, and, the, and the possible flow and so on, we might have been able to say something about that. I mean, we wouldn't have changed anything. But, but you know, So a, a lesson there is a lot of stuff can happen that even those of us who are somewhat pessimistic, and I guess I am in some ways, we don't anticipate. We didn't anticipate that. And we were trying to find everything that we could that might be an issue, and we, we missed that one. There's nothing that we could do that would have a more immediate effect on the health of this region than stopping using coal. Natural gas, with all the fracking and everything else, is still better than coal. You got mountaintop removal versus fracking mountaintop removal is much worse. And coal is much worse in terms of just the burning of the fuel because coal is just carbon. It's C, nothing else. Natural gas is hydrocarbon. So when you burn it, not everything that you get in terms of the the remainder is carbon dioxide. Some of it's water. Some water's harmless. So there's there's less damage with natural gas. I do green power switch, and I was involved in this a little bit back in the 90s when this whole thing was set up. The original deal with TVA, TVA was very reluctant to to venture into green power. And the environmental community came back and said, look, we'll pay a premium if you guys will do this. We're happy to do it. We want to see green power developed in the valley. And they said, okay, if you can get enough people to sign up, we'll take this venture. And, And the thought was, once you get this started in a big way, you get economies of scale. So if TVA is consuming green power, if they're building windmills and putting on solar panels, then then that will encourage other people to do it and there will be a snowball effect. And so those of us who, who do support the green power switch program are still priming the pump, as it were. And we're paying more than other people and we're not getting any special electricity. It's not like you get electrons that come to you f- <laughs> through from solar panels through the grid. You get the same electricity as everybody else does, but we want a different power system. And that's worth doing. I, I really think that's worth doing. There's a, a philosopher by the name of Derek Parfit, who I think is one of the most brilliant philosophers alive. He calls it a mistake in moral mathematics to say that what I do doesn't matter. When there are 7 billion people on the planet, and each one of them says, what I do doesn't matter, that matters a whole lot. You've got to, to be thinking in terms of, not merely of just your effect on the world, but what it would be like if everybody everybody had the attitude, what I do doesn't matter. And of course, we know that most people do have that attitude, probably. Most people have that attitude. But it, but it does matter. I've got a, a paper out now. It's, it's a controversial paper. There'd been all kinds of replies to it. But I think that nobody's really been able to refute it, in which I argue that the average American over a lifetime of carbon emissions creates two casualties in future people. That is death or serious injury in future people. And that's just from climate change, and it's just with people. It doesn't have to do with environmental effects. And I've got a long calculation to show that that's true in a lot of correspondence with a lot of people. It does matter. It matters in concrete terms, in terms of actually, I, w- I want to put it in terms of casualty count. It matters. What do I do with 500 hours? I mean, where's the best place yeah. to invest 500 hours? Yeah, what do you do with your time? Probably the most effective thing you can do to invest your time, and it depends on who you are and, wh- sure. and what your position is, you know? so it's different for different people, is political activism. Yeah. By working for candidates who understand the problem, And uh, by voting, helping other people, encouraging other people to vote uh, for candidates who understand the problem. Political action does not have to be national or even state. It can be local, and local political action is often very effective. Okay, so uh, we're done. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to a podcast of Knox County Public Library. To hear other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.